0: Turning tonight in the Word of God to the book of Isaiah and the chapter 64. We will, of course, be coming to the Lord's Prayer, the pattern prayer, but we're reading tonight Isaiah 64. Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thy wouldest come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence. As when the melting fire burneth, the fire causeth the waters to boil, to make thy name known to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence." When thou didst terrible things which we looked not for, thou camest down, the mountains flowed down at thy presence. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. And of course, we have there the connector with 1 Corinthians 2 and 9, where we have these words quoted, that men have not heard or seen. But notice the addition that we don't actually have quoted in the New Testament when this verse is quoted. O God, beside thee what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. And surely that expresses to us how God has these resources and riches, and he knows the full value of them we don't. And therefore we don't plead for them in the way that we should but he has them all calculated and measured, prepared for him that waiteth for him. And if we are those who wait for him, and if those riches and blessings start coming, then what wonderful mercies we are going to receive. Verse 5, Thou meetest him that rejoiceth, and worketh righteousness. Those that remember thee and thy ways, behold, thou art wroth, for we have sinned. In those is continuance, and we shall be saved." But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we do all feed as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. And there is none that calleth upon thy name, that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee, for thou hast hid thy face from us, and hast consumed us because of our iniquities." But now, O Lord, Thou art our Father, we are the clay, and Thou art Potter, and we are all the work of Thy hand. Be not wroth, very sore, O Lord, neither remember iniquity forever. Behold, see, we beseech Thee, we are all Thy people. Thy holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and our beautiful house, where our Father's praise thee, is burned up with fire, and all our pleasant things are laid waste. Will free refrain thyself for these things, O Lord? Will Thy hold thy peace and afflict us very sore? Then turning over to the Gospel of Matthew and to the chapter 6… Matthew chapter 6, and we're reading verse 9 there. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. With God's Word open before us, we'll bow together in a further word of prayer, please. Our Heavenly Father, to thee we come, we bow our hearts as well as our heads in thy presence, we pray, Lord, that we will know humility of heart, that we will take our position before thee, and that thy Lord will be seen upon the throne. In that year we were thinking about recently, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne and his tree, and also filled the temple. Lord, we pray for that vision again, personally, congregationally, denominationally, nationally, globally. We pray, Lord, that the rings of concentric circles of Thine influence and Thy power will be seen once more, for the prosperity of thy church, for the reclamation of the backslidden, for the regeneration of those who are dead in trespasses and in sins, but for above everything else the magnification of thy person and thy work, Lord help thy people to fully know thee again. The people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. Come and answer our cry. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Looking to the words of a Scottish preacher, David Dixon, famous commentator and Bible expositor, and what he said was for helping faults about prayer. Our Lord gives us the example of a formed prayer, which is to be made use of as a, and here are the key words, a pattern and platform for imitation when we are to pray. Concerning ourselves of any part of the militant church. And he was thinking, of course, of the words that we have in front of us tonight in Matthew chapter 6 and the verse 9 through to the verse 13. Words that are to be made use of as a pattern and platform for imitation. Tonight, we're going to look at what I'm calling the preface to the prayer. You'll find that in the first half of Matthew 6 and verse 9, After this manner, therefore, pray ye our Father which art in heaven. And so, right away, it is brought to our attention the one to whom our prayer is addressed. He is called here our Father. And I believe that in those two words in our English Bible, there is a whole world and wealth of meaning in these words. Maybe we can dig up some of that tonight, mine some of that wealth, discover the world of meaning that we have in these two English words, our Father. First thing we're going to underline is this. We have in this name a fresh name, a fresh name. The prayer that our Lord Jesus taught his disciples here begins with what was a fresh name for God, not the first time that he had been referred to as the Father of his people, But I was rather amazed, I must admit, when I started scanning over the Old Testament Scriptures and tried to find a reference here and there and somewhere else, because I reckon there'll be pretty plentiful to the term our Father, or God at least, being referred to under the guise and through the rule of a Father. And you know what? There aren't really too many. I'm talking about plain, express, explicit occasions when people come and address him as Father. Sometimes it is stated. Most other times, where the thought of his fatherhood appears, it is suggested not expressly said. For example, in Exodus 4, verse 22 and 23, we have the Lord saying, Israel is my son. Therefore, by implication, he is Israel's father. Even my firstborn, let my son go. So, while father is not mentioned per se, the whole concept is definitely there. In Deuteronomy 1, the verse 31, again, thou hast seen how that the Lord thy God bared thee as a man doth bear his son. And the equivalent of that we find in Deuteronomy 8 and verse 5, and in Deuteronomy chapter 14 and the verse 1 as well, allusions to the fact of the family relationship between father and son. We have more plain references And we find some of those in Deuteronomy 32, the verse 6, Is not he thy father that hath bought thee? That's one of the most expressive and plain that we have in the Pentateuch, if not the most plain there. But I don't get until Isaiah 63 and Isaiah 64. I have to travel that far before I get the whole expression of God's fatherhood explored and expressed. Many of his fatherly characteristics we find in Isaiah 63 is compassion and kindness. In verse 7, is love and mercy. In verse 9, lifting up and carrying. Verse 9, familiar verse, I'm sure, the grief that he shows. Verse 10, providing rest and guidance. In verse 14, and then again, his compassion and tenderness. So, that begins in verse 7, and again, it is rounded off by talking about that in verse 15 of Isaiah 63 as well. One reference you're probably having in mind to your and thinking you're forgetting what about Isaiah nine and the verse six the Lord Jesus is called there the everlasting father but that's a topic for another day in fact we have spoken on that before but in isaiah 63 and the verse 16 Doubtless Thou art our Father. Thou, O Lord, art our Father, our Redeemer. Thy name is from everlasting. And that is one of the most clear, precise references to God as Father in our Old Testament Scriptures. And again, the next chapter, Isaiah 64 and verse 8. But now, O Lord, thou art our Father. We are the clay, and thou art potter, and we are all the work of thy hand. So really, when you take all all of the chapters in the Old Testament, all 929 of those chapters from Genesis to Malachi in our English arrangement, you will find very few, comparatively few, references of an individual coming and referring to God as Father. And in the New Testament, therefore, it is largely left to our Lord Jesus Christ to explore this issue and press this topic and tell us the nature and the character of our heavenly Father. That name is written large upon every page of the New Testament— And that essentially new name has brought with it a new joy and gladness into the world. And the fact of the matter is, it is our Lord Jesus Christ alone that could reveal it. Only He could emphasize it. Only He could explain and plumb the depths of what it is for God to be our Father. Why is that? Because as we read in John 1 and the verse 18, no man hath seen God at any time the only begotten Son which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. And if I didn't get the reflection of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, then I wouldn't know God the Father as well as I can. Really, men are only able to see God from the outside. You think of Moses in Exodus 33 in verse 23, and how the back parts of God were revealed to him, and everything else was shrouded in clouds and thick darkness, and his eyes were not able to penetrate that area that God had shielded him from. When God drew near, to proclaim the name of the Lord to Moses, as he did in Exodus 34 and verse 5, that name came from the cloud, and again he did not see God. Well, I can detect him in creation around me. I'm told by David in Psalm 19 and 1 that the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth His handiwork. And I know in the Old Testament, people and nations, they were impressed by God's greatness, by His grandeur, by His wisdom, by His power. All of that was revealed to them. But still, it is through our Lord Jesus Christ that God the Father is fully and properly known. And here we're not just looking at the outside, we're getting an inside view because we are seeing His heart through Christ laid bare to us, and we have shafts of light directed by Jesus into the inner nature of the God whom we love and whom we serve. The secret hidden from the prophet, shielded from the psalmist, not revealed to the seer, has been revealed to the disciples in this neum father by the Son, who from all eternity had lain in the bosom of the father. Our Lord therefore said in Matthew eleven, the verse twenty-seven, and again in Luke ten and verse twenty-two, all things are delivered unto me of my father neither knoweth any man see of the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. We don't know the Father except through the Son. And so in Bethlehem, and up in Nazareth, even in the carpenter's workshop, and in Galilee as he did his miracles, and in the garden of Gethsemane, and on that cross at Calvary, our Lord is spelling out the freshness of this name, revealing to us God in more form than wisdom, more form than power, more form than justice, but as the loving father of all who have trusted in him through the work of His well-beloved and only begotten Son. Very important to note that every time that our Lord is praying in the Bible, and I'm sure we've traced the prayers out in studies ourselves, it's very profitable, we will find on seven occasions the actual words that our Lord is using in prayer are given. And on each of those seven occasions, when our Lord's words in prayer are presented to us, we find He addresses him as father. Matthew 11, the verse 25. Matthew 26: 39. Matthew 26:42. Luke 23 and 34, Luke 23 and 46, John 12 and at John 17, and the verse 1, on every single occasion when our Lord Jesus is addressing the Most High God, He is referring to Him as Father. There is so much we can learn from looking at the prayers and petitions of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's been said that the very opening phrase of this pearl of prayers brings us the best news ever whispered into the hearts of men, for it tells us God is our Father. An emphasis on a fresh name. Not only that, it's a family name. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, our Father, which art in heaven, now, you know as well as I do in society today, everybody living in a Christian country, as they imagine they are, they think that God is the Father to every single person. Now, in one sense, He is, and that He has given life to all. As Paul reminded those ignorant men who thought they were very intelligent on Mars Hill, he whom you ignorantly worship, and he told them about the Father, he gave life to them, because in him ye live and move and have your being. That was the message that Paul emphasized to those philosophers on that occasion. He has given life to all in that sense. He is father of all, but in the most vital sense, he is not. Spiritually, God is not everyone's father. How can he be When our Lord Jesus Christ Himself said in John 8 and verse 44, Ye are of your father, the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. So, what do we have here? In Matthew 6, verse 9 through to the verse 13, we have a prayer that is properly reserved only for the members of the family. It's a prayer only for the saved of the Lord. It is reserved for those who are the sons and daughters of God, who can genuinely say, therefore, our Father. And if people can't say that, the prayer is not for you. John 1, the verse 12 and verse 13, and I was delighted in recent weeks there too, and I would no knowledge of this, but heard a recording, it's on YouTube, of our queen repeating these words. John 1 and 12, but as many as received him, To them give He power to become the sons of God. That's how you get into the position where you can call Him and address Him as our Father. To as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name, which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of God, nor of the will of man, but of God. So our Lord Jesus Christ here, He is placing this name, Father, at the very commencement of this model prayer. And He's emphasizing we have a gate for some here. But the same wooden structure that is a gate to some is a barrier to others. Our Father, the way in which we approach God. You'll know only too well the psalmist asked a question one day. In Psalm 24 and 3, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? and who shall stand in his holy place? In other words, who has the right to worship God? Who has the right to come and pray their petitions into the ear of the Father? And then he was on to answer his own question, and he says, he that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up a soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. And I read that, and I'm not in the slightest bit encouraged. Because not one of us can ever fulfill those conditions. Not one of us can say, by ourselves, yes, I'm a person with clean hands, pure heart, haven't lifted up my soul unto vanity. Of course I have, nor sworn deceitfully. Where is the man or woman whose hands are clean? Where is the man or woman whose heart is pure? Where is the man or woman who has not lifted up a soul unto vanity? Well, I can remember in my days in Free Methodism, how this would have been one of the pet texts of the Second Blessing Movement. And I'm seeing people and on, on reflection now masquerading as those who were meeting the conditions by themselves, by the position they were at at that time, meeting the conditions of Psalm 24, verse 3 and 4. But I can scan every single Christian denomination, and I'm talking about separated witnesses, and I'm talking about free Presbyterianism, and I'm talking about independent Methodism, and I'm talking about every Baptist church I know that is reasonably conservative, and I'm not saying there are not holy or godly men in those denominations. By no means, there certainly are. What I am saying is this stringent demand of perfectly clean hands, an utterly pure heart, a sin-swept soul cannot be met by anyone this side of God's great eternity. Nobody has, or can, or shall reach this lofty peak of absolute sinlessness. And back in those days, I devoured books, and they all had… There was a set of four of them, and they had alpine scenes, you know, climbing the mountain, the hill of the Lord. And I'm thinking, I can do this, but discovering I can't. And thinking, how are these people able to claim that they are sinless? I am so far off the mark, nowhere close to where they are, and you're feeling like, Paul, wretched man that I am. And what are we looking at in our hands and our hearts but sin and sin and more sin? And we're like the leper forced to cry out, stay back unclean like Isaiah. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And if we have to wait until we pull ourselves up or crank our system up to the level of perfection, then we will never, ever ascend into the hill of the Lord, and we'll never, ever stand in His holy place. But thank God, I do have the right to pray and I can appeal to heaven, and I can know answers to prayer coming from heaven. What is my right? What is my warrant, sinful man, that I am to come boldly to the throne of grace? My warrant depends on the relationship that I have with him who sits upon the throne and who intercedes for me. I can go to the Father because I'm accepted in his Son, and I'm resting on his merits, not mine. That's my right to approach the throne of grace in prayer, not that I am sinlessly perfect. I'm not saying it shouldn't be a target. Of course, it should be our desire. It should be our aim. But the fact that I, by the application of the blood of cleansing of Jesus Christ to my heart, have been brought into the family as a son brought in, as a daughter, that's how we can climb this hill of the Lord. When one of the Roman emperors was entering Rome in triumph, a little child just darted through the ranks of the soldiers who were lining the road and acting as guards for the day. And that child made his way to the splendid carriage where the emperor was seated. Some of the soldiers ran after the child and tried to hold him back and said to him, it's the emperor, you can't go there. And the child said, you're emperor but my father. That was that child's entitlement to sit beside the emperor in the carriage of triumph. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear with confidence. I now draw nigh and father. Abba, Father, cry. And what does the devil do? Well, he's very upset that we are not his children any longer, that we have moved off the ground of John 8 and the verse 44 just referred to, and he'll be pulling us back and saying, what right of you as a wicked, wretched sinner to approach the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the one before whom cherubim and seraphim shield their faces and their persons. Why are you plodding into his presence? What right? The right this word gives. Maker of the universe, he is. King of kings, he is. Sovereign God, he is. Yes, but he is also my father. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father. Underline as well the plurality in which we pray here because it is our Father. And that little word gives us a look through the portal to get a splendid truth in focus. It is not the singular, my Father. It's the plural possessive pronoun that the Lord is teaching us here to use, our Father. Yes, there are many times in the closet where it does good to my heart to reflect upon the fact, He is mine and I am His forever and forever as if we were the only two so personal. And we know the Lord loves us, and He deals with us as individuals, and we take refuge in, and we rejoice in the first person, singular. Why should we not? Paul didn't hesitate to do that. Saving religion is personal, so personal. In Galatians 2 and 20, Paul says, the Son of God loved me and gave Himself for me. Religion never becomes real, never becomes vital until it becomes individual, until we can exclaim with Thomas in John 2028, 20, "My Lord and my God." But in this prayer, our Lord wants us to think not just of ourselves, but also of others not simply of blessings peculiar to me and personal to me that I receive from His hand, but blessings that are shared. Our Father. And when we pray like this, according to the command of our Lord, what we are doing is we are automatically linking ourselves with all of those who can say this like us in truth. We make the connection between ourselves and all the other members of God's own family, quite simply those who are His sons and those who are His daughters. And when we're sons and daughters of the one Father, then we must be brothers and sisters, the one to the other. That's a lesson. Jumping through huge letters in this opening sentence and clause of this template prayer. And we need to learn it, and we need to learn it well. Some people have problems with this, big problems, because they can't get on with fellow believers. We need to watch that and guard against it. For you know, if the devil is having difficulty— devouring God's work from the outside he's going to change tack and he will attack from within he'll work to divide from the inside and of this loving cohesion our father is fragmented, fractured. There's a crack here and a crack there, and things are beginning to crumble between the people of God. Then the devil has got opportunity, places where he can plant his foot. And so, he'll divide from the inside. It's what he does. What he takes is a little seed of dislike, and he'll just drop it into your heart and mind. A little seed of distrust of a fellow child of God, a son and daughter of our Father, and he'll be back every day. He'll be inspecting that crop of criticism, and he'll be sprinkling sprinkling a little more water on it, and he'll turn it into more Dislike, And then he think, this is going well. More water. Get it in there. And then there will be the despising of her brethren and her sisters. And more water. That despising will rise to hatred. And now he's working frantically. Get more water into the system. Let this really develop. Like a plant or tree that's just got itself lodged into the crevice of the rock. Bring about the fracture have the split, have the big problem magnify itself. And you know, when I say that to myself, my heart is nodding, and my head is saying, yes, that's true, because I know how the devil works, and we've all seen it happen so many times, but let's make sure that we are on our guard, and we counteract that by loving and praying, not just for ourselves, but for the family our father we do that together how many times in scripture is this emphasized 1 john 2 the verse 9 to 11 the words are straightforward cutting he that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother, repeat it again, just in case we hadn't heard it, is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. And John revisits that. In the very next chapter, in 1 John 3, in the verse 10 to 12, and this, the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil, whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. We can readily identify with one half of that. We're maybe not so liable to identify with the second half. But our Lord connects, and what He connects, we can't divide. Whosoever doeth not righteousness and not of God. Oh, yes, that person that's in sin, loving sin, wedded to sin, they're not of God. We can say, yeah, that's true. We understand that. Neither, neither. Our Lord says, He that loveth not his brother, he's the same. For this is a message that ye have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him, because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. And John isn't finished. Under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, he continues, verse 14 to 19, he says, whosoever Loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him, and so he goes on to challenge us. My little children verse eighteen there let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth, and hereby we know that we are off the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Well is that the lesson learned? Is that it taught? We have it repeated. we thought about it Lord's Day morning, 1 Corinthians 13 and 1. Galatians 5 and 13, Philippians 1 and 9, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 9, 1 Peter 4 and 8, 1 John 4. Not just chapter 2, chapter 3, but chapter 4 as well. Same theme. Verse 20 to 21. 1 John 5. Another chapter where it's mentioned, verse 1 through 3. And so. It's good then to have prayer meetings of this nature, not only to have them in the closet, that's brilliant, but to have them collectively as well, as sons and daughters of the one Father, because we can join together, not just in sitting alongside one another, but in praying together, and unitedly praying for the one end. There is a place, the hymn writer said, where Jesus sheds the oil of gladness on our heads, a place that all beside more sweet it is the bloodstained mercy seat. There is a scene where spirits blend, where friend holds fellowship with friend, though sundered far by faith we meet around one common mercy seat. And if we took this issue as seriously as we should, as seriously as God intends, very evidently, We could end up pulling down some barriers to blessing. Because if you check it out in context, 1 John 3, verse 22 to 24, it ties in this fellowship together as believers, owning one head, one father. It ties it in with answers to prayer. It's so vital. So, we have tonight a fresh name, family name, and thank God a forceful name. Because this term, our Father, not only gives us a warrant to pray, it tells us the spirit in which our prayers should be offered. It tells us that we should be coming to the Lord with that prayer that is offered in a spirit of childlike confidence. Our Father. What is underlined in Hebrews chapter 11, the verse 6, but without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. And the child in your family epitomizes this Sometimes we are not just as confident when we come and ask someone to do something, if they'll actually do it or give us what we actually need at that time. But the child just comes in confidence that you're going to give. You're so good, you're going to supply. The need I have. Our God, we are sure, is a rewarder a father more eager to bless his children than any earthly parent is to respond to the request of his child. And our Lord paints that very picture. In Luke 11, verse 9 to 13, And I say unto you, Ask, and it shall be given you, seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, he that seeketh findeth. To him that knocketh it shall be opened. And then here's the picture of a son. Ask bread of any of you that is a father will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? After this manner, our Lord here is very precise and calculated in the way that he tells us to begin to pray here. After this manner, therefore, pray ye our Father. In other words, approach with boldness, come with confidence, come with a childlike expectancy and dependency and trust. Sometimes we pray as if God keeps his heart bolted and barred. And a supply is stashed away in some dark, inaccessible dungeon that we don't have a key for. And we're going to have to, by sheer weight and repetition of our petitions, we're going to have to force and cajole and pressurize and batter our way through. Now, there is a place for importunity in prayer, no doubt about it. It's recommended and encouraged. In Matthew 11, verse 12, why does the Lord keep us coming back and back and back again? Well, it increases our sense of dependence upon Him. It emphasizes to our hearts and minds the thing that we often forget, that He is alone the giver of all grace. It draws us out again and again on what we should do, holy duty, the worship of Himself. It tests the level of our desire. It also tests the measure of our faith, and it increases our desire, and it increases our faith. That's why many times prayer is not answered immediately. But the notion that these blessings must be wrung out of the hands of our reluctant God, that He must be coaxed or cajoled into handing over the bounties, that His arm must be seriously put up His back before He will answer, that's ridiculous and blasphemous too. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, our Father. Cry with confidence. This old book tells us in James 4 and 3, ye ask and receive not because. Ye ask, miss, that ye may consume it upon your loss. In Matthew 9 and 28, according to your faith, be it unto you. In Matthew 17 and verse 20, and Jesus said unto them, why was prayer not answered? Because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, if ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. And so we conclude, if I have received little, it is because my faith has been so little, and I've been treating God as if he were stingy and tight-fisted and economical and reluctant. Oh, to grasp this word, Father, our Father, these two words in the fullness of their meaning, and it's put here at the beginning of prayer what to do to teach us confidence, teach us faith, encourage holy boldness. Theodorus saw Martin Luther in prayer, and he said, Once I overheard him in prayer, and oh, with what life and spirit did he pray, It was with so much reverence, as if he were speaking to God, and he was, yet with so much confidence, as if he had been speaking to a friend. The very wording, therefore, in Matthew 6 and 9, inspires confidence. After this manner, pray ye, our Father, which art in heaven. What is heaven but the place of dominion? And the place of authority. Psalm one hundred and three in the verse nineteen The Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom ruleth over all. That other psalm to which we referred in prayer tonight, Psalm 2, where we have men joining together, kings and princes and potentates, and they're all in it together, and we're going to overthrow and destroy the kingdom of God. No, you're not. But when they're plotting, what does heaven do? Does it react in panic? Oh dear, what are we going to do with this confederacy? How will we push them back? No, heaven's very relaxed. He that sitteth in the heaven shall laugh, The Lord shall have them in derision. They're the ones that will be panicking. He shall speak unto them in His wrath and vex them in His sore displeasure. And our Lord here is teaching us to say, Our Father which art in heaven, and the blessed truth that He's bringing to your heart and mine is, Our Father that we are addressing is in the place of supreme dominion. And what a blessed truth that is. I go back to Luther as I close. Luther had looked around and he saw things declining. And the interest of the kingdom of God on the way. And what did he do? He gave himself to prayer. Rising off his knees, he came out of his closet. And his friends were gathered around, and he just confidently announced to those friends, we have overcome. We have overcome. And at that time, a proclamation came from the emperor, Charles VI, saying that nobody, anywhere in his dominion, would be any further molested on account of their profession of the gospel. Our Father, which art in heaven, had answered prayer, taken care of everything on earth, and He still does and can do again.